I'm Dr. Daria Rose, and you're listening to The Daria Rose Show, where we bring a fact-based perspective to answer all those confounding questions that come up in our day-to-day lives. From achieving optimal health, to making conscious choices about your purchases, and raising kids that thrive, we are here to help you navigate your life with confidence. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Daria Rose Show. Today's episode is with the OG of alternative medicine, Dr. Andrew Weil. I brought Dr. Weil here to continue our discussion of how do we know what's true in the realm of personal health and medicine. We have an amazing discussion ranging from how the traditional medical establishment so often falls short in making us healthier to the completely unproven alternative approaches you see all over the internet. We touch on psychedelics, vaccines, and come up with some really solid ways you could find good quality information when trying to improve your personal health. Now, if you aren't familiar with Dr. Weil, he is a world-renowned leader and pioneer in the field of integrative medicine. Combining a Harvard education and a lifetime of practicing natural and preventative medicine, Dr. Weil is the founder and director of the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson where he also serves as clinical professor of medicine and professor of public health, as well as the Lovell Jones Professor of Integrative Medicine. He is a best-selling author of 15 books on healthy living, including Mind Over Meds, Fast Food, Good Food, True Food, Spontaneous Happiness, and Healthy Aging, and so many more. He's being modest listing only those here, but there's he has so many amazing books. And if you haven't read one, you have to at least pick up one. I really, really like spontaneous happiness. And the Oxford University Press is currently producing the Weill Integrative Medicine Library, which is a 16-volume series for clinicians in various medical specialties. Super cool. Dr. Weil is the editorial director of drweil.com, the leading online resource for healthy living based on the philosophy of integrative medicine, and pens Dr. Andrew Weil's self-healing monthly newsletter and a column in Prevention Magazine. Dr. Weil is the founder and chairman of the Weil Foundation, the founder and co-chairman of Healthy Lifestyle Brands, and a founder and partner of the True Food Kitchen Restaurants, which, by the way, are absolutely fantastic. If you ever get an opportunity to eat at a True Food restaurant, they're super healthy and super delicious and absolutely in line with everything I recommend in terms of healthy eating. And in 2017, Dr. Weil joined Seaborn and the onboard spa by Steiner in their spa and wellness with Dr. Andrew Weil mindful living program on its cruise ships. That sounds like a very lovely vacation. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Weil as much as I did. Dr. Andy Weil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. It's so nice to see you. It's been forever. Seems like. I hope we get to see each other again (laughs) soon. Are you up in uh, BC right now? Yeah, I'm on Cortez Island. Uh, so nice. So nice. You generally spend your summers up there, right? Usually I spend most of the summers up here. Yeah. Perfection. Perfection. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I've been doing a series about truth because (laughs) it's something that has become really confusing in the internet environment we're in. And I've done a deep dive into science. I've done some into social media. I've done one into journalism. And I thought I would love alternative medicine is one that is extra muddy, I feel like, especially since a lot of people don't have expertise in science or medicine. Mm -hmm. And you are probably the best person in the entire world, I think, to talk to about this subject because 
You're the OG. I often get called the guru of alternative medicine. I don't like that term. I'm not a guru, and I'm not an uncritical proponent of alternative medicine. I think that's a mixed bag of ideas and practices, some of which are sensible and some of which are nonsensical and some of which are probably harmful. I believe in looking through all that and seeing what's valuable and then combining that with the best of conventional medicine. See, that is exactly why you're the best person in the world to do this. (laughs) Yeah. So um, why don't we start a little bit by talking about your background Mm -hmm. and what you've created because integrative medicine, and you like founded that term, is that right? I did. And I founded the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, which is now called the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. I have trouble saying that name, but we are the world leader in educating physicians and allied health professionals in this field, which is becoming mainstream. I think many people have a hard time knowing what integrative medicine is. It's not alternative medicine. It's not holistic medicine. It is the intelligent combination of conventional medicine and with natural therapies and preventive practices. And it's attempting to correct the deficiencies in the conventional training of physicians and other healthcare providers. That, that makes a lot of sense. Can you uh, give some examples of how what's deficient? Well, a glaring one is nutrition. The total instruction <laughs> I got in nutrition in four years at Harvard Medical School was 30 minutes, which were grudgingly allowed to a dietitian at one hospital I worked at to tell us about special diets we could order for patients. Now, that hasn't changed a lot since I've been out of medical school. When nutrition yeah. is taught, it's taught as biochemistry, and it's forgotten as soon as the biochemistry exams are over. So I, th- I think you can argue that most physicians are functionally illiterate in nutrition, not their fault. They weren't taught it, and it's not obvious where they can go to remedy that. Another great deficiency is that the focus of conventional medicine is all on the physical body. And clearly, human beings are more than physical bodies. They're also mental, emotional beings, spiritual entities, community members, and those other dimensions of human life have to be taken into account to understand health and illness. And that falls under the heading of whole person medicine, which is a key philosophical plank of integrative medicine. You know, it's it's funny. It sounds so obvious when you think about it, that your thoughts and emotions don't happen outside your body. (laughs) The mind and body are not separate. The only way you can separate them is verbally and anything going on in one sphere goes on in the other. And in my own experience of clinical practice over the years, I have more often than not found the roots of illness to be in the non-physical realm. And unless that's addressed, treatments that are solely directed to the physical body are not going to be effective. So that's another broad area of deficiency. And another one is that conventionally trained physicians and other healthcare providers are simply unaware of the existence of other systems of medicine and other ways of treatment. And some of these can be very valuable, something like osteopathic manipulation, I have found to be extremely valuable. Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine is very effective with some kinds of conditions that conventional medicine is not so good with. And one example is with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis. I've seen some great results with, with Chinese medicine with those illnesses. So, I think it's important for an integratively trained physician to know when it's appropriate to refer to those other kinds of medicine and how to find a good practitioner and when those systems are not appropriate. So that is, yeah, that is, it just seems like such an obvious future (laughs) that you saw. 
in the past. I mean, you, you've seen this. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and sure. how you got here? Okay. I think I, I always thought this way is for as long as I can remember. As a kid, I was fascinated by the mind and how the mind affected the body. I was very interested in plants, something I got from my mother that she got from her mother that eventually led me to be a botany major as a Harvard undergraduate. That was a very wise decision and started me on a career interest in medicinal plants. I began. I kind of want to do, go do that now. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so fun. It's great. And that's also, <laughs> I find botanical remedies to be very valuable, often very effective and much safer than pharmaceutical medication. So it's something you want to know about. I began, I guess, reading about uh, studying about alternative medicine when I was still an undergraduate. Then in medical school, I, I was just very disappointed that I, I learned nothing about health. I learned nothing about healing. I always felt that the main job of a doctor is to keep people healthy, to teach them how to live in order not to get sick in the first place. And I was really not taught about that. So I'm curious why you even went to med school. <laughs> well, uh, there were three reasons. One is I didn't know what I wanted to be. I had general interests and telling people I was going to medical school made everyone go away. Secondly, it was during the Vietnam War <laughs> and it was a very convenient way of putting off a decision about what to do about that. You got a deferment for a long time. And third, I had an intuition that a medical degree, given my interests and personality, would be very useful to me. And it has absolutely been. I could not have done what I've done if I did not have a, a medical degree. Yeah, so you went through the full Harvard medical training. And then I did an intern, a general internship. And at the end of that, I felt I didn't want to take further training in standard medicine because for the reasons I just gave you, but also because I saw it do too much harm, especially adverse drug reactions. And I felt there had to be other ways of doing things, but I didn't know what they were. So I dropped out of medicine, made my living as a freelance writer, and found ways to travel around the world for a number of years. I spent a lot of time in Latin America, South America, looking at healing practices in other cultures, studying medicinal plants, meeting various kinds of healers and practitioners. Yeah, at the end of that, of several years of traveling the world, I, my car broke down in Tucson, and I ended up staying there. I fell in love with the desert, met people I wanted to be with. Um, and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's really serendipitous. <laughs> it was. And I was again, still making my living mostly as a writer, but the University of Arizona Medical School found out I was there and asked me if I would begin teaching medical students. They first wanted lectures about marijuana because I was the only person who had done research on it. And there were a lot of questions about it and people didn't know uh, anything about it. So I was asked to talk about that and then to give another lecture on drugs and addiction in general. And then I said, you know, this is old stuff for me. I'd really like to talk about alternative medicine. People didn't mm -hmm. even know what that meant. But so I started giving lectures on alternative medicine, mind-body interactions. Those lectures eventually formed the basis of the first book I wrote about health and medicine called Health and Healing that laid out my philosophy. I had not intended to practice, but people who had read what I'd written or heard me talk began showing up at my doorstep wanting me to treat them. And at first, I was reluctant to do that because I didn't know what I was good at. And I gradually found I was good at two things. One is diagnosis, which I do mostly by listening to people. And the other is being what I call a therapeutic marriage broker. I can arrange happy alliances between patients and practitioners, whether that's within conventional medicine or outside of it. And I 
called what I was doing at first natural and preventive medicine, later came to call it integrative medicine. For a number of years, none of my medical colleagues paid any attention to what I was doing. I got a larger and larger following in the general public, but no doctors were interested. It was only in the early 1990s when the, pol- when the economics of healthcare began to go sour that the institution began to be open to this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, what were they just unimpressed by things they'd never heard of before? Or? Yeah. I think doctors are instinctively defensive and rejective of anything that comes from unfamiliar sources and if they haven't learned about it. So there was complete closed-mindedness to all of this. I'm curious on your travels and adventures, like what did you see that really, like an example or two of something that really opened your eyes to what is possible? Ironically, the most valuable thing that I came across turned out to be in my own backyard, and I never knew it had been there when I did all this roaming around the world. Hmm. And that was an an old elderly osteopathic physician named Robert Fulford, who was in his 80s when I met him, the best healer I've ever met. He used hands-on manipulation. He was a master of cranial therapy and a very gentle hands-on technique, placed a great deal of emphasis on the breath. And he produced regularly what I saw as miracle cures of all sorts of conditions. And he emphasized that the healing power of nature he, it was just wonderful to watch him work. And that really opened my eyes to the possibility of a whole other realm of interacting with patients. That is, that's really cool. So the traditional, I, I, I have heard you say before that it's, you don't like the term traditional medicine because it's the newest and in some ways silliest <laughs> medicine, but the traditional let's say, establishment was not paying attention for many years. And, but you started getting following from public? Definitely from the public, some from medical students. And then somewhere around 19, I think 1990, somewhere around that, the my best friend from Harvard Medical School was named chief of medicine at the University of Arizona. And mm. he came with a new dean. The two of them had been at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and had been responsible for getting John Kabat-Zinn's program in mindfulness set up there. So I had dinner with my friend and he said, well, now you have friends in high places. What would you like to do? And I said, I want to change all of medicine. And he said, how do you want to do that? And I said, well, I'd like to create a residency in a field that I want to call integrative medicine. So he said, let's talk to the dean who was a wonderful person, said, you can't start a residency in a field that doesn't exist. He said, why don't you back up a step? And think about creating a fellowship, which is the way doctors train after residency. And that way also you wouldn't be accused of tampering with unformed minds. So he gave me a green light to try to do this. I had no money. I had one assistant and we had a room in a trailer behind the College of Medicine with a phone. And from that, we we planned a weekend retreat in Tucson and invited experts in a variety of fields to meet for a weekend and hammer out the basis of a curriculum for a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine that included nutrition and all the things that we've talked about. Then we advertised and we got four physicians to come who took great a great risk and came to live with us for two years to learn this. And each, for a number of years, we trained four physicians a year. We had two classes going, so we'd have eight at a time. And the main criticism we got was how possibly you're going to change anything by training four physicians a year. 
But yeah. our plan was, first of all, over the years, we graduated about 35 people from this residential fellowship. Some of them are now in very significant academic positions around the country. But more importantly, we were able to develop a really good standardized curriculum that we translated into a distributed learning format and began offering this as a non-residential fellowship, online fellowship with three residential weeks in Tucson. And we've now graduated, I don't know, somewhere closing in on 2,500 physicians from this very intensive training from all over the world in all specialties. If you go to our website, which is integrativemedicine.arizona.edu, there's a find a practitioner link and you can find our graduates in every state, in every specialty. And they are great they're great people. It's doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants. We've had some dentists go through, but all ages and literally all specialties in medicine. Very cool. Yeah. I. It's almost astounding that this isn't normal. It, it will be. And I've always said one day we'll be able to drop the word integrative and it'll just be good medicine. It's you know what, what medicine should be and it's what medicine will be again. I haven't had a lot of personal experience. I hadn't had a lot of personal experience with the medical industry because I've always been really healthy because I pay attention to nutrition and my body and my mind. But when I had children, I, you know, it's one of my first like serious interaction with the medical industry. And I was at a very excellent hospital, but I, I was astounded that, for instance, the doctors didn't know that if you're getting leg cramps, magnesium helps. Like, t- take, right. take some supplements. Oh, by the way, you're pregnant and constipated. Also, that helps that same, like, mm-hmm. it, it helps as well. And I mean, if you t- talk to, I mean, even if you just talk to a sports medicine doctor, they know that. But for some reason, it was just completely siloed. And they were just like, yeah, you just have to deal with the cramps. And uh, I was just like, yep. oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so and it's, it's astounding to me that's still something that, that I know that trained doctors in this field don't know. Well, that's a good example of one of the things that's wrong. Also, there's a tremendous problem in our country of over-medication. The amount of medication that's taken both prescribed and over-the-counter is enormous. And in many cases, that's not necessary. And most practitioners are unaware of non-medication, non-pharmaceutical ways of managing common health conditions. And that's one of the things we also teach. I'm certainly not opposed to using medication when it's necessary, but uh, you first want to explore what can be done in place of that. When we test drugs in, in medicine, we do research on them, we test them against placebos. What we should be doing is testing them against lifestyle modification. Mm. That data would be much more significant and really guide us in our ways to practice. That would be so cool. Uh, I, I'm kind of like turning that in my head. The biggest problem I, I see with that approach is that it's so hard to get people to do the lifestyle modification, the compliance. So there's two problems. One is that the physicians aren't taught in that. They don't know what to suggest. And the other, as you say, is that also that medication often works quickly and there's no requirement for work. When you ask people to change their diet, first of all, it's going to be a time lag before you see a uh, benefit. And then also that's effortful. But I think you have to one you have to convince people that in the long term it's worth it because medication, most of these medications that we use over time actually can worsen or prolong conditions, whereas the lifestyle modification will often get to the root uh, of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many examples where 
you've just been so 100% right on this stuff that I, I was laughing. Like, I remember when omega-3 supplements <laughs> were considered alternative medicine. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, it's so hilarious because at this point, there's just mountains of evidence right. supporting their use for all sorts of different things. But that's considered, you know, quote, alternative. And so on one, in one hand, there is plenty of scientifically rigorous evidence, standardly a standard evidence of beneficial practices that are considered alternative. But at the same time, there's a probably more <laughs> nonsense out there, especially now that we have the internet. And yeah, I'm curious how, how you feel about that <laughs> like now in, yeah. in the digital age that we're in. Well, you said at the beginning that you're interested in this podcast in truth. Uh, yeah. I'm not so sure that there is truth, that any, it's all point of view and you have to figure out what the, the bias of the source of the information is. And that is harder and harder today. As you say, in this, uh, digital age, there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there. And all I can say is that you've got to seek out reliable sources. So I recommend my books, my website, <laughs> drweil.com, the website of our Center for Integrative Medicine. You know, those can all point you in good directions. But it, it, it is tough. And especially if people are faced with serious illness, they're often not in a place where they can take time to evaluate all this information. And it would be very helpful to have the assistance of somebody who is trained in integrative medicine to answer these questions and help you. That, so you, you can also seek out people who've been trained this way. We, there's now a board certification in integrative medicine. There are the cool. people who have graduated our, our fellowship, and there's some other fellowships around the country. But that, it's very helpful to have somebody like that on your team. Yeah, absolutely. So finding people that are certified in this combined sort of <laughs> integrative medicine. Yeah, the problem is as integrative medicine has become popular uh, and it's becoming much more so, there a lot of people are saying that they're practicing integrative medicine, but you want to look at what was their training? Have they been through any kind of formal training? You don't know. Right. You need an actual expert. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you've seen in the sort of alternative medicine space that just makes you roll your eyes and it's just like total nonsense. You're how like, much, I'm out there, but that's just crazy. How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, I got all day. Well, I'll give you some examples. Well, you know, when I'm at unfamiliar practices, if somebody tells me you should really check this out because it cured me of this and this. So my first concern is, can it do harm? If there's a potential for harm, I'm much more cautious about it. Mm. And if there's not good evidence, if there hasn't been much research, the principle that I advocate is that the greater the potential for harm, the stricter the standards of evidence you want to hold it to for efficacy. For example, I teach breathing exercises to all patients and breath control. There has not been a lot of research on that because People don't take it seriously in the research community, but I'm not bothered by that, by that because the potential for these breath exercises to cause harm is minimal, and the benefits that I've seen and other people experience is great. There's, uh, there's great popularity of ozone therapy out there in the mm. alternative medical world. All sorts of claims made for it. It's people breathe it, they inject it, they take it rectally, and ozone <laughs> is a, you know, that's a quite toxic substance. And I would be very cautious about putting ozone in the body. I'd want to see some really good evidence for the claimed benefits for it. There's a lot of enthusiasm for colonic therapy. People take 
colonics and they talk about saying watermelon seeds come out and they haven't eaten watermelon in months and that there's incrustations <laughs> oh on the colon. There can't be incrustations on the colon. The, what I know from my medical training is that the cells that line the colon slough off and regenerate every day. So given that, you don't have things adhering to the inside of the colon. And the harm from that, there is some potential for harm, not great, but there's some, but it's unnecessary. You know, the way you clean the colon is to have things go through it regularly from the top <laughs> down. There's a lot of stuff out there. And as I say, the first concern is what is the potential for harm? Yeah, that's a really brilliant point. I was thinking, I'm not sure, I, I couldn't find any data to support it, but have you heard of this like muscle testing, I'm sure? Yes, I have yeah. looked at that a lot. And I think that is a suggestive phenomenon. I think there's a way in which one person can weaken another person's muscles and that the claims that this is revealing information about internal functions of the body or as a guide to which supplements you should take, I think there's absolutely no evidence for that. Yeah. And that's, I, I was coming to the same idea, which is that you're using something for diagnostics. That's what you, that's not do, quite doing the same kind of harm, but right. closer because it's guiding you toward or away something for completely nonsensical reasons. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I, yeah, I, and I completely agree. My, my general philosophy is if no harm, no foul. Now, There's no harm in meditating. There's no right, harm exactly. In getting more exercise or eating more vegetables. Now, also, Dory, I think that same principle should be applied to conventional medicine. I gave a lecture a few years ago at the University of Arizona College of Medicine called What Were We Thinking? And mm -hmm. I looked at cases dating back over the past 50 years of things we did that now we look back on and can't believe we did. You know, things like taking out everybody's appendix for every time you had the abdomen open, you took out the appendix because it was a useless organ. Or when I was growing up, you got <laughs> your tonsils and adenoids came out because they were considered useless organs. We know that these are, are functional, important parts of the immune system, and we don't do that anymore. It's so hilarious that anything in the body would be considered non -functional. I know. And then, and then once it's labeled <laughs> that, then you remove it. I, that's, right. And then, yeah, let's just <laughs> right. cut it out. So there's a whole list of things like this. But whenever I look at those, then you, oh, I'll give you one more. I once came across when I was at Harvard Medical School, I stumbled into an old attic that had, uh, it was a museum of medical curiosities. And one of the things was a belt that you wore around the waist that had two pouches that held radium ore. And you were supposed oh, to, God. and you, the pouches fit over the kidneys. And you were supposed to wear this for two hours a day to deliver healthful radiation to your kidneys. Okay, amazing. <laughs> but whenever I hear stuff like this, my mind goes to what are we doing today that 20 or 50 years from now, we're going to look back on in the same way and not believe we were doing this? Uh, Great question. So, yeah. So that's a good thing to think about as well. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah. As a neuroscientist, I often hear, well, we just use 10 percent of our brains. So right, like, yeah. Okay, just cut yeah, the rest yeah. of it out. I'm sure you'll be fine. Or this dose of radiation is too little to matter. So, you know, one of the things I know this comes up a lot these days, but it must be incredibly gratifying to you the way psychedelic research has completely turned the corner. It's, it's like such, I, I know to me, I'm like, this is the perfect poster child for your approach, yeah. right? Because not only has it was just arrogantly shunned mm -hmm. by, for no reason, it was just yeah. shunned for no reason by the medical community for decades. But on top of that, it, as it's been scientifically validated in such amazing capacity, mm -hmm. but with the, what the researchers have discovered and 
now embrace is that the set and setting is the essence of making this work, right? That people have when taking psychedelics is a product of the drug, which includes the dose and the nature of the drug, set, which is the person's expectations of what will happen, both conscious and unconscious, and the environment, both physical and social, in which the substance is used, which is setting. And it's the interaction of all of those that determine the experience. The magic is not just in the substance. Yes, it is remarkable to see this renaissance happening. In pre-COVID, when I was traveling a lot and speaking, whatever subject I was giving a talk on, whether it was healthy aging, nutrition, integrative medicine, there were questions about psychedelics. Where can I find somebody who can guide and trip by all of that? And I saw last month, I think Vogue had a cover story on psilocybin. Vogue. So <laughs> I would say that's mainstream. So yes, this is remarkable to watch. We've still got to get these things out of federal schedule one in the Controlled mm -hmm. Substances Act. They, on a physical level, are some of the safest substances that we know. They don't cause physical harm. Main dangers, potential dangers are psychological and that has to do with set and setting. And the pot positive potential is enormous. And it's not just for psychological problems. That's all I hear about today. It's anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so forth. Right. But I think there's remarkable potential in physical medicine because they can give people a glimpse of the possibility of living without chronic pain, for example, or mm -hmm. seeing that a, an autoimmune disease can go into total remission. And it, it all has to do with changing what's in the mental compartment and affecting the physical body that way. Yeah, it's so cool. I just can't think of a better example to just prove what you've been saying all along, right. which is that you got to take care of the head too. <laughs> exactly. And I, if I really let my mind go with this, maybe the rediscovery and reintroduction of psychedelics into our culture, maybe this is exactly the antidote that's been that's needed for the cultural mess that we've gotten ourselves in. No, maybe this could, could change everything because the only way... All the stuff that's wrong is going to change us through a change in consciousness, a collective change in consciousness. And this could, oh, that would be amazing. I know. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep that in mind. We'll just dose the water with LSD, guys. It'll be fine. <laughs> so is there any other... That one is just so big and so glaring, and I had to mention it. But is there anything else you've been really gratified to see science catch up with you? I would say, first of all, there's a lot on the horizon that, that looks really interesting to me. One is the whole realm of regenerative medicine. I think we're pretty close to being able to repair severed spinal cords, uh, to repair, get uh, the pancreas of diabetics to produce insulin again through stem cell therapy or gene therapies to repair areas of the heart that have been damaged by heart attacks. I think that's coming. That's coming soon. Uh, oh, that's so cool. Because a big part of your thing is not just, th this is something that I just want to clarify. So a big part of the reason you started integrative medicine was because everybody just wanted to fix everything by pat like band-aids and drugs, yep. but you actually want to create health. Absolutely. And, and I think yeah. that one of the, the yeah. first basic principle of integrative medicine <laughs> is that we're trying to restore the focus of medicine on health and healing. And that's not a new idea. Hippocrates in the 5th century BC said to revere the healing power of nature, which we don't do. To me, the most striking fact of human biology is that the body has the capacity to repair itself, to maintain equilibrium, to regenerate, to adapt in injury and loss. Ways. And this is what I heard nothing about in medical school. That should be where you start. 
You know, the, right. the body has a- you want to just help that. The body has a healing system and it makes mm. use of known systems like the immune system and circulatory system and so forth and nervous system. But that's so important. We have a the potential for healing and and good medicine starts there. When I am with a patient, at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, why is healing not happening here? Now, mm. What can I do from outside that might facilitate that? Is there an obstacle to it I can remove? Can I supply something that's missing? But that's, that's what you want to do. You want to facilitate the natural inter- intrinsic healing process. Yeah, it's so cool. You know, I look at, I have two little kids now and I, you know, if they get a scrape or a cut, I mean, you know, I heal obviously, but they are like, they're like, x-men right <laughs> they just like perfectly there's no so get scar, them that's good no, to amazing. get them to focus on that and plant this yeah. idea that the body has the ability to heal itself I, I i'd say routinely i find that most people do not have confidence in their own healing abilities and that's one reason why people run off to practitioners of all sorts all the time without thinking about what they can do on their own and be independent of you know those systems yeah, that's really heartbreaking. And it is something that I wish people understood. And in terms of stuff that's still coming, do you do you have anything on the horizon that that you think of? Man, it's just a matter of time before. <laughs> <laughs> the research that's going on the microbiome is also mm. just phenomenal. And this is such a change. When I was in medical school, I was taught, yes, there are all these organisms in the colon and they assist with digestion, but that was about it. And that people who took probiotic supplements were health nuts. You know, and now we're finding that the microbiome determines everything. It really determines your interactions with the environment. It's critical in emotional well-being. It may determine the outcome of chronic neurodegenerative diseases. It's just everywhere you look, it's involved. And thinking about how you can manipulate it, how you can protect it. This is a huge frontier of new medical research. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I yeah, it completely changed my life when I figured out that. I needed to, because I always, like my entire life, even from a tiny child, I had, I would just get these periodic, just agonizing stomach aches. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just realized I I don't do as well on dairy. Uh (laughs) That was something I had to learn. But you know, I never knew that was an option until I was in my, you know, early 20s. Nobody had ever told me that you could be sensitive to a food, that like your food impacts how, or even how you chew. Mm -hmm. Can impact how your gut feels. And then now, like if I travel and I eat something on the airplane, maybe it wasn't the best or whatever. I just, I know so well that if I just go home and eat kimchi for three days in a row, I'll be fine. <laughs> that's Great. a miracle. Great. I'd say another big area is environmental medicine, which was totally neglected when I was in medical school. I mean, looking at the environmental causation of, of illnesses, I, I would bet any amount of money that Parkinson's disease will turn out to be environmentally caused. I think there's a oh, number yeah. of things out there that affect the brain that way. ALS may also be a bunch of things. and Pesticides, for pesticides. sure. I mean, that's already been yeah, documented. Clear. So yeah. I think we're finally beginning to get good information about that, and it's beginning to be taught some in, in uh, the training of doctors. Yeah, I'm actually very hopeful that happens soon. You know, I actually want to talk about vaccines here in a second, but I feel like a lot of the confusion and frustration that comes around vaccines and some other scientifically valid medical interventions are dismissed because people are like, there's so much ADHD now right. and there's so much autism now and there's so much immune autoimmune disease now. 
it must be X. And yes, yes, we started vaccinating 30, 40 years ago around the same time. Mm -hmm. But also the amount of toxins in our environment is just staggering. And, and I just, you just can't escape it. I try so hard. Me too. I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Like I've got insane water filters in my house. I won't touch plastics. Yep. I definitely won't give my kids anything out of plastic. And uh, people, I definitely have mom friends that like think I'm totally insane <laughs> for like not using plastic because it's so convenient. But I'm like, to me, like that is so obvious source of potential contamination, especially for a developing child. Yep. And all the plastics that the Plastics that we considered safe for a very long time turn out not to be, and probably the ones now considered safe are going to turn out not to be. So I think that's a wise decision. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm very skeptical yeah. of the silicone plastic that everybody thinks are fine. And yeah, and then it's, and it's so hard to escape because it's one thing to not buy plastic water bottles or plastic plates you put in the microwave, but it's in the water now. It's in almost everything. Yeah. And it's really, it's in the salt. So as for vaccines, uh, yeah. It is remarkable and very discouraging to me the the rise of the anti-vax movement. And also, when I was in medical school, the people who didn't vaccinate were poor people, uneducated people. And now the shift has been to highly educated people who question vaccination. I feel very strongly that the principle of vaccination is very sound. You are facilitating meetings between the immune system, the developing immune system, and harmful, potentially harmful organisms. And the benefits are lifelong protection. And there are risks. Everything we do in medicine has risks, and vaccination certainly has risks. So you have to do a risk-benefit analysis. To my mind, the risks of the diseases that we prevent with vaccines are much greater than the risks of the vaccines. And if people in this culture lived with polio, which I remember from my childhood, mm. or smallpox or diphtheria, I don't think anybody would be questioning it the way that they are now. I mean, these are horrible diseases. The polio right. epidemics that happened every summer when I was growing up were really scary. And, yeah. and the vaccine changed all of that. It's very difficult to talk about this to a parent who has had a child that's had a serious adverse vaccine reaction. No, they happen. But again, if you do it, the risk-benefit analysis, I think you come down on the side that almost always the benefits of vaccines are greater than the risks. In the case, I think also we will probably have better and better vaccines. And this is one of the results of genetic engineering that will be able to give pure antigens to people and get exactly the reaction that we want and minimize the incidence of risk. So that's, I think, on the horizon that vaccines will get better. In terms of the COVID-19 vaccine, these look highly effective to me. It's, it's changed everything. And ag again, I think that there are risks, but the risks are minimal. Long-term risks of these mRNA vaccines, unknown, but probably not great, looks good to me. So it's, an, I guess, an individual decision. But on the other hand, you are putting the rest of the population at risk by not vaccinating. And we've already seen pertussis come back. We've seen measles starting to come back. And these diseases will reappear as more and more people don't vaccinate. Right. And these are diseases that kill people. Absolutely. And they also, kill children. And yes, and it's something that I think many of the, the anti-vaxxers don't realize is that the consequences of getting these diseases at older ages are much more serious. The risk right. of dying from measles is much greater if you get it as an adult. 
Same for chickenpox. You can get uh, encephalitis or pneumonia from these diseases, much greater incidence if you're older. So by not vaccinating kids, you're exposing them to that risk as well. Anyway, very complicated issue, and there's just so much emotion around it and so much misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, it's gotten really, really messy. You know, there's two groups. I mean, there's the traditional sort of woo-woo group that has been a vaccine hesitant for the last decade or so. And then, and now there's this new group of politically anti-vax, which which is really unfortunate. As as far as I understand, there there aren't very many examples of really long-term vaccine risk. It's usually, especially at the volume we're vaccinating people now, like you're going to know within a few months they usually say two months, but right. let's say four. If there's any serious consequences, we did find the blood clots with the a couple of the adenovirus COVID vaccines, the the J. Johnson and the AstraZeneca. But for the most part, we know the long term risk now. I think I've heard some people concerned about the possibility of autoimmune diseases that could result from the mRNA mRNA vaccines. That's unknown, but my guess is that's not a significant risk. Yeah, I, I don't, and I don't think it would necessarily be different than the risk of getting COVID, right? Because they're it's just a piece yeah. of the vaccine, right? So yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, so and just to wrap up, I'm always trying to provide people with a way to make decisions, and I know that it, for all the reasons we've discussed, there are a lot of reasons to when you go to and we have an issue and you go get your talk to your regular doctor, they don't have answers for a lot of things. And when people are looking for alternative answers, I really want to give them some guidance on how, how to do that wisely and how to find these trusted people. And it's tough because there's a lot of very convincing people out convincing there. Convincing stuff on the, on the internet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. On the other hand, I have to say that I think the internet has leveled the playing field between doctors and patients. Now, when Mm. I was growing up, doctors wrote prescriptions in Latin, and that was designed to (laughs) to keep you from knowing what they were writing. And then you took that to a pharmacy and handed it over a very high counter that was there to prevent you from seeing what went on. And you never asked a doctor or pharmacist, what was this medication or why you should take it? You just didn't do that. So that's oh all God. changed. But I think yeah. that now, and I've seen many patients in, say, the past five, 10 years who have found exactly the information they needed on the internet, and then were able to take that to their doctor and show them. So that's the positive side of it. The other side of it is that how do you weed through all that and know what's reliable and what's not? And I will just repeat that it is invaluable to be able to have access to a, a person who has been trained in integratively, who has the broad picture and can help you go through that information. Great. Trusting experts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing people have forgotten how to do. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, that's continues to be the recommendation of all the brilliant people I've interviewed here on the show so far. Andy, thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. Yeah. Pleasure to talk to you. Look forward to more. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you loved hearing from Dr. Weil as much as I did, you can follow him on all the social platforms at Dr. Weil. That's where he is over everywhere. (laughs) And um, probably the best resource if you want to learn more about integrative medicine is the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I'll, of course, put that link in the show notes. Thank you guys for joining me. As always, if you want me to get more great guests like Dr. Weil, 
please share this with your friends. Leave a review. Tell me what you love. And we can keep this party going. Thank you, guys. And I'll see you next time.